have in our congregation that God has gifted to to uh, to play and 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 be uh, uh, be gifted musically. That's a gift. That's not something that you earn. So that's a gift. I know practice comes with it, but um, old and young, um, and uh, just a just a just a real real blessing uh, here uh, this morning. Uh, Mark chapter three, verses thirteen through nineteen. Here. Jerry, could you go to the next slide here? Uh, on November 5th, 2011, Saturday, University of Tennessee freshman Derek Brodus was lying on the couch at his fraternity house on Saturday night, waiting for the Tennessee Volunteers college football game to start at 7 p.m. Less than an hour before kickoff, he fumbled for his cell phone as it started to ring. And imagine his surprise when a voice on the other end told him the coach of the Tennessee volunteer football team was sending a police escort to get him to the stadium immediately. He said, I thought it was a dream. I was just lying on the couch relaxing and they answered my phone. They tell me that I need to come to the stadium as soon as possible. Just minutes before that call, the Tennessee backup kicker, Chip Rome, had pulled a muscle during pregame warm-ups. And the starting kicker, Michael Party, was already out. He was injured in the practice that had happened that Thursday. And one hour before kickoff, and the Tennessee Volunteers were out of kickers. Derek was a freshman at the University of Tennessee, and he had tried out as a place kicker when he had enrolled at Tennessee as a walk-on, but he never made the team. But on that Saturday, Derek was the team's only option. The coach, Derek Dooley, told the press later, I said, let's get an APB out on Brodus. It's a good thing he wasn't drunk. Let's get him. Get, get him there. Give him a breathalyzer. Fortunately, he didn't do anything bad. Well, minutes after Derek hung up his phone, the police escort arrived at the fraternity to rush him to the stadium. The team's trainer stretched him in the locker room and he put on the pads and a jersey that didn't even have his name on the back. Early in the game, he was called into duty and he made the most of his opportunity pretty quickly. He made all three of his extra points and he kicked a 21-yard field goal at the end of the first half. His team ended up winning the game 24-0 very easily. Back in the locker room after the final whistle, the kicker who began the evening lying on the couch with a bag of chips was celebrated as the hero and the team cheered as Coach Dooley gave Derek the game ball. And that's kind of, kind of what happened last week in Mark chapter 1, isn't it? You never know when the Lord will call you to get off the couch, right? Uh, to get out of what you're doing and use your gifts and, 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 and be equipped by God to use you for the kingdom of God. And so we began this series um, uh, a couple weeks ago in John chapter 1 with Jesus' first step here, His first stage here of come and see. And you can go to the next slide here. Jesus spent four to six months of inviting people and asking, what are you seeking? And inviting them to come and see, to introduce them to Himself, to introduce them to His ministry, to explore, to check out Jesus in real life. And then there was a period of 10 to 11 months we looked at last week here, where Jesus says to those fishermen in Mark chapter 1, come and follow Me. And so it's, it was through his teaching and through his, his example that he established followers and the priorities of, of Scripture and prayer and the importance of being together in fellowship and outreach. And he gives them responsibility and he gives them vision. He tells them, uh, I will make you fishers of men. 
And so come and see, come and follow me. And now in Mark chapter 3, you may have passed over it here as Jared read it, but he says, come and be with me. Come and be with me. So four to six months of inviting them to be who were curious uh, to, to, to see who Jesus was. Then 10 to 11 months to come and follow me. And now 20 months. This is like this is the, this is the third stage of, of his ministry here. This will go all the way to, to, to the night of the cross. Come and be with me. 20 months. Well, he will prepare them to take responsibility for a world mission, to be fishers of men. And he's going to use regular life as his teaching laboratory. In fact, one of the most uh, simple things, but profound things that is at the end of these verses here is in verse 20, and the multitude, um, uh, and the end of verse 19, and they went into a house. They went into a house. Jesus just uses ordinary life here uh, to, to show them who He is and His call to make them disciples. So we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 17, come and follow me. And that was a command for them to reorder their lives around the command of the Gospel, to turn and believe that the Kingdom of God was at hand. And this call in chapter 3 and verse 14, though, has a different character to it. It is a commissioning to share Jesus' authority. The book of Mark is very clear about Jesus' authority. In fact, one of the words that's repeated over and over, and many scholars say is the key word of the book of Mark, is the word immediately, or sometimes translated straightway. It's the idea of authority. Jesus in charge. And Jesus here with come and be with me commissions them to share His authority. The twelve were to be with Him. They were to proclaim the Gospel. And they were to drive out demons. There are five things in this passage here that I've picked out here. We'll move through some of them fairly quickly and some of them we'll spend a little bit more time on. But I'd like to begin with the first one here. Notice in verse 13 here, the prayer, the prayer. You might say, well, where's the prayer? Verse 13 says, And he goes, goeth up into a mountain and calls to him whom he would, or those he wanted, and they came to him. They came to him. Well, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, records this very same setting where Jesus calls the twelve to him. And Luke chapter 6, verse 12, I'd like you to go there quickly here, tells us this about Jesus' night there on the mountain, what preceded this calling. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. He prayed all night to his Father. The night before he chooses his twelve here, he prays all night to his Father. That that longing for fellowship with his Father uh, and his Father to be involved in this task, his mission here, of making these disciples to prepare them to eventually go and be fishers of men here. Uh, uh, he, he, he has to spend that time with his Father and not a sentence prayer and not a... Oh, thought about it here, kind of a prayer. But all night, he pours out his heart to his Father. And we might ask ourselves, what kind of things must he have prayed? What kind of things would he have prayed for? He couldn't have just been praying, Lord, give me wisdom to know who to choose here. He, 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 must, have, he must have prayed some, some powerful things. And I think we get a little clue into what he prayed when we look at one of Jesus' prayers at the end of the book of John. John chapter 17. Because there in John 17, he, he alludes to some of the things he may have already prayed for. And so I'd like you to flip over to John 17. There are things that Jesus prayed would happen through these men. 
that Jesus pours His heart in dependence on His Father and the Spirit for. John chapter 17. It's like Jesus is picking up on a conversation that He's already had with His Father in John chapter 17. And He says these words, I have manifested Your name to the men which You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever You have given Me are of You. So perhaps Jesus was praying that evening, I think very possibly, that the things that God had given the Son, would they would understand. And they would be from God in verse 8. For I have given to them the words which you gave me. They have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. I think that one of the things Jesus was praying was that He would be able to establish them with this invitation to come and be with Me. That the words that that, that the, the Word of God that the, the Son dwelt in and, and loved uh, in fellowship with His Father would then be transmitted to them. They would see who Jesus is in all His glory and that this would, would be the empowering of their mission after Jesus was left. That, that, that who, uh, who Jesus was, they would be established in. Who Jesus' mission was, would be established in. Uh, what their response to that, they would be established in. That though Jesus was God, He needed to talk to the Father and the Spirit and have them do this work in the hearts of these men in Mark chapter 3. So first of all, the prayer. And we can see right away the importance of prayer. Jesus, God Himself, the God-man, and He must pray to His Father and ask God to work. And perhaps is, is, is there such a dearth in, in disciple-making because we are not people of prayer and people of faith? Uh, perhaps is, 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 is God not working as we would like to see Him work because we are not entrusting Him to work as we cooperate with His work? Perhaps our prayers have become ritual or dead or, or stale here. And we need to rethink and look back at what Jesus says about, uh, about making disciples and pouring into them and, and, and asking God, you do the work as I participate and cooperate with you. Perhaps we need to be emboldened in our confidence that it's the Word of God that does the work in building men and women and girls and boys. And Jesus here didn't take this task lightly, did He? Jesus... Praise all night to his father. So first of all, notice the prayer. Second of all, notice the pick, for lack of a better P. The pick. This isn't like a schoolyard pick. He has them come and he says, okay, I'll take you, take no. This is, this is men he's had his, his eye on. This is men after this phase here of, of, of come and see, men who have shown interest, and, and men who he, has, who he has said, come and follow me, and he's called them to, to repent and believe in the gospel and declare the kingdom of God as a hand. This is, this is men who he is summoning now, and that is the word that's used actually in verse 13. That word call means summoned. He summoned to him the, whom he would, and they came to him. Notice their presentation. They came to Him. They came to Him. This is kind of what we've already seen with the follow me charge, isn't it? They dropped their nets, they left them, and they went to Jesus. He calls them, and they come to Jesus. They hear His voice, and they follow Him, right? He's their shepherd. 
They're going to have lots of problems. In fact, one of them, Mark will, will not mince any words to, to declare one of them is, a, is an imposter, right? Judas Iscariot here. But they, they come to him. And, and friends, when Jesus calls, because of who Jesus is, we follow him. He is King. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is, he's, he is the King that our hearts have been searching for. He is the King who has authority over everything. Yet He is the King who humbles Himself for us. He is the one who died on the cross for us when we didn't have the right thinking or the right beliefs or right behavior and invites us to come to Him and repent and believe on His name. Jesus is the one who has brought us news, not advice. Jesus is the true life. And they respond and they, and they came to Him. Really, it's a picture of what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. They presented themselves to Him. Lord, here is your task. Here is your calling. You have said you would make us fishers of men. You have called us now as a small group to do this work in. You start with a small group and we will surrender to this task. So many times we want to look at other people, don't we? I heard a story about a guy in a church who always thought the pastor's message was from somebody else. And after the message, he would always come up to the pastor and say, so that was good, so-and-so was there. They really needed that. Over and over, that would be the response after the message, oh, that was so good, so-and-so just needed to hear that. And then one day there was a snowstorm, and he was the only one that made it, he and the pastor, and the pastor preached, and his response was, boy, I wish they were here to hear that. (laughs) That's kind of how we might think, isn't it? We have this tunnel vision here. And these brothers, these men, uh, they came to Him and they understood that Jesus is calling me. He's calling me. They presented themselves to Him. But then I'd like you to notice the process. Look at the process here. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 says, And He ordained or appointed twelve that they should be with Him, and that He might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. They came to him and he appointed twelve. Certainly you are not the only one who wondered why there were twelve, right? Why twelve? Why not eleven? Why not nine? Why not fourteen? Why twelve? Well, twelve is a more manageable group, certainly. But why 12? Well, that echo of 12 is in the Old Testament, isn't there? There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. In Genesis, God started with Jacob's 12 sons, didn't He? Exodus, He builds them in the mighty nation. And Israel was to bring the Messiah into the world so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Him. But the nation of Israel had decayed, hadn't it? And there were many who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Warren Wiersbe says this, <clears throat> The nation of Israel, uh, God had to establish a holy nation of peculiar people, 1 Peter 2.9, and the twelve apostles were the nucleus of this new spiritual nation. Notice they're all Jews. They're all Jewish people. Jesus is showing Israel what believing Israel looks like here. And He chooses twelve here. He chooses twelve that they should be with Him and that He might send them forth to preach. What is this process though? The first thing I'd like you to see here is His presence. His process is His presence. Is His presence 
Look what chapter 3 and verse 14 says. He ordained twelve that they should what? Be with Him. Those two words, with Him, were the process for Jesus making disciples. When Jesus said back in Mark chapter 1, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, the process He had in mind was, I will be with you. I will be with you. And we've lost uh, some of this in our society, haven't we? With, uh, with the old days of bringing someone alongside to learn a trade. We, we have a little bit of it with the apprenticeship, etc. here. But it's not like it would have been in the old villages that they would have been familiar with here. There, there is a fellowship here. There is a relationship. There is a learning on the job. Jesus Himself lives as a person in community. He does not live as an isolated prophet wandering around. He has people who are to be more than just his pupils here. They were to learn him. These were his friends. These were his co-workers. They are not just appointed to do the work, but they are appointed along the way for fellowship. And that is one of the missing links of discipleship, isn't it? How, how, how much we look at discipleship as just a transfer of information. But this is a transfer of life here. Life on life. So that reproduces His life. Not just His methods. Not just His mission. Jesus wants His life with them to go deep. He wants them to be a, not a shallow cup, but a deep well of water that sloshes out in ministry. I'm glad we still have hardware stores, little hardware stores in the area, not just the big orange Home Depots or the Blue Loves. Here's some reasons for that. <clears throat> okay, You go down to, to, to Vic's hardware store, Union True Value here, and you walk in, the, the, the counters are filled with merchandise, the shelves are, 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 are stocked, there's stuff hanging from the ceiling. You think, um, there's everything I need in here. And you get in, and Vic behind the counter, or somebody else will say, how can I help you today? What are you looking for? And you know, you might say something like, well, I want to I put a light out back in my house. And so they'll come from behind the counter and ask questions. Well, where are you going to hang it over? Are you going you're gonna, to you're gonna put it over the patio? And, and, and he starts going over to the light section looking for just the right light. You, you might want a light like this. Don't use these bolts here. They're, they're good for indoor, indoor stuff. But you need outdoor. You need something galvanized. Um, oh, and your wall. What's your wall made out of? It's it's uh, it, it's brick, isn't it? Um, uh, and and so uh, you're gonna need to run the conduit through here. You're gonna need a masonry drill bit at least three quarters of an inch. If you don't have one in stock, you can get one over here. And and he and he, and he uh, tells you how to how to mount it. And you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you walk into the store like a little boy walking into. I don't know what, it's just overwhelming, right? Yeah, they got the aisles and the shelves, but the ceiling goes, you know, 30 feet up. And um, you, 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 there's an ocean of parking. You go inside, and there's 40 times the inventory. It all looks great here. And there's a guy in an orange apron. Um, and if you run him down, he's probably going to lunch break or something. Um, he's like, let's say, sorry, I usually work in paint. That's not my area. Expertise. Let me find Bill. He's over in electrical. Or I'm just covering electrical because Johnny called in sick. So you're pretty much on your own. And something like that is trickled down into, from our culture into Jesus' church. You can have programs, and programs are amazing. But there's people that we need to bring back, like the Vicks of the hardware store, Right? 
an interest in you, someone who knows more than you do, someone who will help us, who will guide us to grow in Christ, to get the project done. And throughout the Bible, don't we see that's the way faith is passed on in Deuteronomy 6, from the fathers to the children, wherever they're going. Moses trains Joshua how to lead. <clears throat> Eli, in all his brokenness, in telling Samuel how to pray to listen to God. Jesus teaches the apostles. Timothy's grandmother Lois trains up her daughter Eunice, who trains up her son Timothy, because their father is a spiritual AWOL. Uh, Paul calls Titus his son in the faith. When it helps people growing into spiritual maturity, the Father gives us the union true value principle here. There's the older teaching the younger. There's those who have gone down the path teaching those who are newer down the path here. And there's the idea of being with. And it was not absent or missed in Jesus' ministry, was it? In the late 1600s and early 1700s, there's a half-literate Italian craftsman named Antonio Stradivari. You all know his name, probably, or have heard his name. Um, uh, He designed and made a series of beautiful musical instruments. And those musical instruments are named after his Latinized uh, version of his name, Stradivarius. And they're considered priceless. In 2010, a Stradivarius was purchased for $3.6 million. It's believed there's only about 500 of them still left in existence. Um, and some of the ones that they've had, they have submitted to intense scientific examination to find out how to reproduce the extraordinary sound and quality. But no one has been able to replicate Stradivari's craftsmanship. We know what he built them out of. He used for the violin spruce for the top. Uh, he used willow for the internal internal blocks and linings. He used maple for the back and the and the and the ribs and the neck. He treated the wood with several types of minerals: uh, potassium borate, sodium, and potassium silicate. A hand handmade varnish that may have been made of, of gum arabic, honey, and egg white. That's what the scientific examination has has come up with. But that genius craftsman never once recorded his technique for his posterity. Instead, here's how he did it. He passed on his knowledge to a number of his apprentices, without writing it down, through what one scholar calls elbow learning. How many of you learned through elbow learning? Elbow learning is this. He didn't have these manuals, and this is their order of process, so there's nothing wrong with that. You know how you learn to make a Stradivarius violin? You didn't learn your craft from a book or manual, but you sat at his elbow. And you felt the wood as he felt it to assess its length, its balance, and its timber right there in his fingertips. All the learning happened at his elbow, and all the knowledge was contained in his fingertips. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. Elbow learning. Sure, he's teaching them methods. He wants to teach them how to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's going to give them authority over the demons. But he wants their inner life, their connection with Jesus Christ to be second nature by this transfer of who he is. And this is the stage of discipleship where somebody wants Jesus. They want not just, they don't just want to know what Jesus knows but they want to be with Jesus. They want Jesus. And so he says in verse 14, Mark's commentary is, and this is probably from the mouths of Peter, his primary eyewitness, 
and He ordained twelve that they should be with Him. He didn't say that they were going to have weekly appointments or this or that. He he knows that the key to success, the key to stability in the Christian life is a constancy in life with Jesus. A deep-rooted, flourishing life with Jesus. So many times we can get to this other stuff here, right? Which is very important, right? The multiplication, the making of the disciples, this, that, and the other thing of ministry here. But it has to flow out of life with Jesus. It's the overflow. Ministry is the overflow of my life with Jesus. John starts out his letter in 1 John, that which we looked upon, we handled the true light of life. He talks about Jesus and he talks about relationship with him. He talks about things that block relationship with him because he wants to understand that all of life is with Jesus at the center. And how many of us go through so many different things in life, right? And even doing wonderful good things. Even our family devotions, etc. All wonderful things. But is Jesus at the center? Is it flowing out of our life with Jesus? Do you remember what he tells the woman at the well? He says, the thing I'm going to do to you is have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Rivers of living water where you're going to drink and never thirst again. We can do all the ritual and all the wonderful things that we need to do as believers, but our life has to be rooted in Jesus. We have to be connected in the vine. And we'll look at this next week here when he says, remain in me, so that they can then do the mission after he leaves. But life with Jesus, to be with him. And brothers and sisters, as we are making disciples, that is what we're trying to have flow out from, uh, flow, flow, flow from our own veins. Our life with Jesus. We're not trying to reproduce ourselves. We're not trying to reproduce our three or four pet peeves. So they have those same three or four pet peeves. We're not trying to uh, reinforce our, 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 our other uh, little hobby horses here. We are trying to get people to Jesus so that they remain with Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ has, has, has and, and, and America seems to have left this and we seem to have just want to do things and build things and multiply things and, and make names for ourselves. And forget the point is we're building on Jesus and who He is. Because it's out of Jesus that these other things are much more easily motivated, aren't they? Jesus' ministry is not to try to guilt people into doing things. Jesus wants people to see Jesus so that they want to multiply Jesus. Look what he says in the next verse here. He gives them his presence here in the process. He gives them his next, his proclamation. His proclamation. Look at verse 14. That he might send them forth to preach. That he might send them forth to preach. Do you see the goal here again? It's connected before with Matthew 1. Go and be fishers of men, right? He wants to make them fishers of men. The goal is proclamation here. Now we hear that word preach and we, say, and we now immediately put those disciples on another level. I'm not a preacher, right? But that word means to proclaim. We hear that word preach and we think of a pulpit and we think of yelling, right? But, uh, uh, but, but what you need to see here is why does Jesus want them to preach? 
He wants them to have the Word of God that's in them overflow. And He wants to see this Word of God that's in them overflow multiply. So what Jesus is, 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 is wanting them to do is take what He taught them and reproduce it. There are many different ways to preach and teach. And most ways don't involve a pulpit or yelling, right? They go on all week. They go all on week. It's proclaiming, it's sharing what you've been taught in the Word. It's not being a dead-end pipe, right? Here, it's, 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 it's letting what has flowed into you in your life with Jesus flowing out. This isn't based on your gender here of preaching. This isn't based on, on how old you are. This isn't based on your, on your, um, uh, on your social status here. This is, this is the life of believers here. We speak the truth. Remember when we looked through 1 Corinthians 14 and there were all these things that were going on? There's people teach about speaking in tongues. Uh, he talks about singing. Uh, he talks about people bring words of exhortation. He talks about prophecy. All those things have one thing in, pro- in common. You know what it was? There are all varieties of ways to speak forth the Word of God. Proclaim forth the Word of God. Why? Well, we saw the Word of God is what gives life, right? It's the Word of God where the power is. It slices through the heart. It's the Word of God. And, and so, and so the, when we see that word proclamation that He might send them out to preach here, don't say, well, that was them and this is me. No, you need to think the multiplication of the Word of God. That comes in ordinary conversations, doesn't it? Yes, it might come through sit-down, intense Bible studies. That's not the only way. It might come through the pulpit. This is one way. This is like the air war, right, uh, here. But you're to take that, and and you and the congregation are to take what you learn and and do the ground war as well here, door-to-door, family-to-family, neighborhood-to-neighborhood, co-worker-to-co-worker. You're to share the Word of God. You're to declare, as Peter says, the excellencies of the Lord. The mercy of God that has been extended to you. And all of this is so that Jesus is glorified. But you'll notice the third thing under His process, He gives them power. He gives them power in verse 15. And have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. That word power is not the word dunamis for power, like we think, boom, power. This is the word exousia. It's the word authority. In fact, it's the same word he uses in Matthew 28 when he says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So he gives them authority here. Remember he said Mark is all about God's authority here. Jesus' authority. He gives them authority. It is the word that is authority here, a proclamation. And because of the presence of the one who has all authority, that they had been with him and they are speaking out his word, he gives them the authority to push back the darkness. This is a demonstration of the Spirit of God in them. This is authority because the one who is authoritative is behind them. I'm one of these young people who still likes the Andy Griffith show from the 1960s. And uh, Andy Griffith uh, and one, uh, Andy, uh, Andy Taylor in one of the episodes, is, the sheriff, Mayberry, he's out of town. And so his deputy Barney, Barney Fife's in charge. And he's deputized the local mechanic who you all know is Gomer, right? And the two deputies are doing their rounds one night. They're walking down the street one evening and they notice that somebody is robbing the town's bank. And so they hide behind a car. And they're afraid and they don't know what to do. The deputy and his protege here. 
And finally, Gomer looks at Barty and he says excitedly, Shazam, we need to call the police. <laughs> and utter ex- exasperation, Barney shoots back, We are the police! And friends, we can chuckle at that, but that's kind of how we as believers act, right? We've been given authority, we've been empowered in the Word of God, and we look at these life situations, look at the world uh, and, and its destruction, and we say, Boy, they need something. Or, Boy, I wish there was somebody who would tell him that. And friends, we are the power of God through the gospel in us. We are the ones who, through Jesus' uh, sacrifice, has made to engage in His army. 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says we're soldiers of Jesus Christ and we can be strong not in our own power, but in the grace that He's given us. We are the police. This is it. These are the people God has entrusted to reach the area around here. This and the other Bible preaching churches in this area here. The, the, the congregation that, that is sitting here, if you know Jesus Christ, you are called to multiply the Word of God. You are called because you have been given authority in Jesus Christ to, 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 uh, uh, to push back the darkness. You sang well this morning. If I was coming in here this morning as a visitor, I would say, from, from how these people are singing, it seems like they really believe that. The truths that they were singing. And friends, let's not just be that way on Sunday, right? Let's be the people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday where the world says they really believe that. It's working. It's alive in them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not perfect. They have their own struggles. But you know what? They're always reorienting back to that person they keep talking about. Nick shared this morning in Acts chapter 4 that these disciples Jesus spoke to later on, the religious leaders took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. There were a lot of ups and downs before that, weren't there? There was a lot of messy stuff that went on. His ministry is messy. When it all came down to it, the life of Jesus was reproduced in them, and people noticed that they had been with that Rabbi Jesus. We are the police. And finally, I want you to notice the people. The people. You could spend a lot more time on this. Some men have written books, very thick books about these men. Uh, These people. Simon, he surnamed Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. John, the brother of James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Simon, Jesus gives him a nickname, Peter, the rock. The only time Jesus calls him Simon is when he's acting like the old Simon. Uh, there's uh, 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 four lists of these disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also Acts here. Peter seems to be the, uh, the, 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 the spokesman, the leader, the most notable. He's the dominant preacher, the first 12 chapters of Acts. Um, and uh, and he's uh, he's God. Jesus gives him a nickname that reminds him where he needs to be, the rock. And then there's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. We met these men in chapter one. Jesus called them were fishermen. Their father Zebedee probably had a very successful fishing business. He was known among the high priests, the chief high priests there in Israel. They're identified as the sons of, of Zebedee. He must be have been a very significant guy for the readers to know. Oh yeah, Zebedee. Yeah, I know who he is. 
And then there's Andrew and Philip. Philip seems to be the leader of this second group here. He's from Bethsaida. He probably, Jesus probably knew the four before him. He knew all the rest. Philip may have been a, a Greek-speaking Jew. These men may have known each other. The first four probably were fishermen. We don't know about the rest. And there's Bartholomew. Bartholomew isn't really a name. Bar is a Hebrew word for son of, and Ptolemy is a name, so he's the son of Ptolemy. His name is probably Nathaniel that we met in John chapter 1. And there's Matthew. He's being used by the Roman government as a puppet agent here to collect taxes for the occupying government here. He's hated, despised by everyone for what he did, working and cooperating with the oppressing government. Then there's Thomas. Apparently he was a twin called Didymus in John 11.16. They've had a twin brother or a twin sister. We don't know. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. We really don't know anything about Alphaeus. We don't know anything about James. He's always the first name in the final group here. The word Alphaeus there, it's, 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 it's like the, 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 there's a big James and then there's a little James. It's a, it's the, it's the, um, he has another uh, nickname. You, you see this uh, later on. Is the word's actually micro. So it means he's a little guy. James is a little guy. Nicknames. Then there's Thaddeus. Thaddeus. You ever known anybody named Thaddeus? I don't know a Thaddeus, but his real name is Judas, the son of James. Um, uh, this is this is this is the Judas. Uh, he's he's called Thaddeus Lebeus. Those are nicknames. Thaddeus basically means mama's boy. That's not a big high noble name for Jesus to say. I'm going to send you to preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, the word of God, and you're going to push back the darkness here against the demons. Mama's boy. But there's these twelve guys here with all their nicknames here. They're 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 living together. They're 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 sharing the life of Christ. They all have weaknesses. They got bad sides, downsides. Uh, they they they're, they're, there's all kinds of stuff there. And then you got James and John here who seem to have a temper. And then there's this guy Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. If Matthew over here was working for the occupying government, Simon the Zealot was in the militia. Simon the Zealot was determined to overthrow uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, zealots were those who, who they, would, they would walk down the street, it would be dark, and they'd see a Roman soldier coming home from his work, and they'd pull out the dagger and stick him and keep walking on. That's the kind of, 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 of thinking. They were in there, political revolutionaries, hotheads. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. The saddest story, right? What a, what a story of opportunity, right? Three years, 24-7 with Jesus, and he betrays the Lord Jesus. It's an interesting group. You look at these men in that day, there probably wouldn't be a person in Israel besides the one who had prayed for them all night who said, I will use them to change the world and turn the world upside down. Ephesians 2.20 tells us they are the foundation stones of the church. They're examples of virtue. They're holy apostles. Their messages confirmed by signs and wonders. Revelation tells us they will reign over the twelve tribes of Israel and they're on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Why? Let me tell you how their lives ended according to tradition. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he felt unworthy to be crucified as his Lord as his Lord had been according to the church historian Eusebius. 
Andrew reportedly also was crucified, tied instead of nailed to prolong his suffering. James, the brother of John, is the only apostle whose death is recorded in Scripture. He was executed by Herod Agrippa in the book of Acts. Philip was said to have been stoned to death in Asia Minor, but not before multitudes came to faith in Christ through his teaching. There's different traditions about Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Some say he was bound and thrown into the sea. Others say he was crucified. Matthew may have been burned at the stake. Thomas likely reached India, where traditions say he was killed with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death by the Jews for preaching Christ, according to tradition. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Egypt, North Africa, and Persia, where he was martyred by being sawn in half like Isaiah. Other traditions say he was eventually crucified by the Romans. Thaddeus, the mama's boy, was a preacher of the gospel in modern Turkey and was clubbed to death. There's no backup plans. There's no backup crew. These men, in all their weakness, became who they were because they had been with Jesus. Come and be with Jesus. And this tells us that God uses ordinary, weak, failing, ignorant saints because that's the only kind that there are. I got my daughter a storybook a few years ago of children's fairy tales, and one of the stories in that book was a fairy tale by George MacDonald who wrote it about 150 years ago called The Princess and the Goblin. There's an eight-year-old girl... She finds an attic room in her house, and every so often her fairy, bear with me, it's a fairy tale, her fairy godmother appears there. And so she goes to look for her, and um, uh, she doesn't see the fairy godmother. So uh, one day her grandmother gives her a ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a little ball of thread. And grandma says, I'm going to keep the ball of thread. And Irene says, I can't see it, the thread. And Grandma says, no, the thread's too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. And so she tests the thread, little girl Irene. And Grandmother says this, listen, if you ever find yourself in danger, you have to take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed, and you have to lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Well, because Grandma's holding the ball of thread, Irene says, that's wonderful, Grandma, because it will always lead uh, lead me to you, Grandma. I know that. And the grandma says this, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I will hold it too. And the rest of the story is about her adventure here, of the roundabout way of finally getting to her grandmother here. And she goes through very many dangerous things, and things where we would say, what, what is she doing? But she's following the thread. She is following the thread And Jesus here is saying to all of us, and he's saying to these disciples here, follow me, come and be with me. The journey I'm going to take you on is going to go into some dark caves. You're going to to come uh, to the very gates of hell, he says in Matthew 16. But I'm on the other end holding the thread. And not only that, I'm with you. I am with you in real presence. And real presence. Uh, don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Don't pick up the plow and look behind. Look ahead. 
as long as you look ahead, as long as you keep trusting in Me, you're going to be able to walk on water spiritually. You're going to be able to go through the trials. You're going to be able to go through the storms with, with confidence that Jesus is in charge here. With the disappointments, the things that are going to happen to you. I'm going to take you places, Jesus says, that you're going to think, why are you taking Me there? Why did you bring this person in My path? Why did you allow this to happen? And Jesus is there with you and He's also holding the other end of the thread. MacDonald said this about his story, The Princess and the Goblin. You will be dead so long as you refuse to die. That is, you'll be dead so long as you refuse to die to yourself. Follow the thread. You see, Jesus' way leads to life. If you can trust Him for your salvation, for all eternity, can you trust Him in the path of discipleship? I think we can. You know, I told you what happens at the end here with the disciples, their outcomes, all the way to the their whatever their end was. And I guarantee you here, as 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 the eleven and Matthias, who is selected to replace Judas uh, in Acts chapter one, as as as, as they are as they are enjoying their reward. They would say to you, follow the thread. Follow the thread. God has given you His Word. He's given you salvation. He has given you the power, the authority, and His Spirit. Follow the thread. Go and make disciples. Perhaps I'm talking to some though here, and you might might be in one of those stages where it's come and see, and you're still exploring. You're checking out Jesus. What else do you need to know? What else do you need to know? He'll reveal it to you. All that He wants you to know, He'll show you. He'll show you who He is. And perhaps there's people in this congregation, you know people are saying, who He is, Jesus has said, come and see. People have expressed curiosity in Jesus. And Jesus is telling you, tapping you on the shoulder, to show them. Show them who Jesus is. How has Jesus changed you? And maybe there's some here who you understand that it's the Word of God that multiplies. And you're going to take a step of, of, of faith here by praying and asking the Lord to bring someone into your life here who you can begin to unfold the Word of God to in your own way, in your own level of complexity or simplicity, uh, in your own understanding here as you've been taught. And you're going to see the Word of God and pray the Word of God multiplies and bears fruit in that person's life. Make disciples. Listen, if the message here is just simply to guilt people into becoming more fervent about Jesus' disciples, that burns out. That works for a while. It burns out, right? Friends, what Jesus is calling us to is not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible. My flesh and my nature doesn't want anything to do with this. I want to be comfortable. I want to sit on my couch. And I want to watch Netflix. They need Doritos. <laughs> cool Ranch Doritos. But that's not what this is about, is it? Jesus is calling these men to come and die. When Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. When you took up your cross in the New Testament, it was not bearing a hardship. Someone who they would see walking down the street carrying a cross was on their way to their execution. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to come and die for Him, to come and live with Him. It means setting aside myself and my own agenda, self-denial, so that Jesus' agenda is mine.
Jesus is mine. And you know what's amazing about this? Is Jesus Himself does absolutely everything He's calling us to do Himself. When He calls James and John to, to leave their boat in Mark chapter 1, He already left His Father's throne to live in obscurity for the sake of God's will. When he, when he tells them to lay down their lives for the sake of the Gospel, what does Jesus do at the end of His life? He gives His life as a ransom for many. That's our King. That's our Savior. And friends, He is, he is, he is going to be abandoned on the cross so that we can be brought near to Him. So we can be with Him. And as you follow that thread that Jesus calls you to, it's going to take you to places that might seem like dead ends. There's going to be some blood on that thread, isn't there? There's going to be some frayed edges here. But that thread is secure, and the one who holds the other end is Jesus Christ. And you can't go back. You can't turn to the left. You can't turn to the right. Because Jesus, who was crushed for you, invites you to follow that into His arms. Let's pray.